Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 220th episode of the podcast. And as I've done 21 times before, every 10 episodes, I take a few minutes to respond to, uh, on the podcast, interactions I've had with people uh, because of website comments and emails and things like that. It, it's just an opportunity for me to uh, break up the format of the podcast instead of 25 minutes on one topic. I talk about three topics, usually for about seven minutes each. And hopefully they're interesting for you because uh, I, I think that they can be applicable to more than just the person that asked the question. That is why and how I choose the emails and the comments that I do for these episodes. But before I get to these three uh, comments, I did want to express my appreciation for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for finding the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. No matter how you found it, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that you are enjoying it. And my request would be, one, share it with somebody. Uh, if somebody that you know is a fellow angler or is just interested in fly fishing, then uh, please pass it along. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are weird algorithms. and I'm, I'm positive I could pay money to have the podcast appear in front of more eyes and consequently more ears. But my preferred way for this to grow is organically that somebody says that they liked it. So they shared it with somebody else. So I appreciate that and any sort of reviews or ratings that you do happen to leave. So this week, three uh, interactions, and the first one, it's really interesting. So this is from Andrew, and Andrew uh, lives overseas somewhere, and he writes a, uh, a, a comment on a post from a couple of years ago on uh, a, a article I wrote on the Latorte. And if you don't know, the Latorte Spring Run is a relatively small spring creek that originates outside of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Uh, the headwaters, I think, are, are one branch are in Carlisle. The other branch, I think, is a Mount Holly Spring address. And uh, it flows northward to the Conaguinic Creek just on the other side of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It flows through uh, meadows. It flows through woods. It flows through an urban area. It actually flows through the U.S. Army War College uh, before it passes under one of the most heavily congested uh, interstates uh, intersections in uh, in the country. It actually has some of the worst air quality in the country before dumping into the Conaguinic Creek, which eventually makes its way to the Susquehanna River um, outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 
La Torre Spring Run is a famous stream, uh, and, and the reason for that is a few men and a group of anglers around them that pioneered a lot of trout fishing tactics, uh, just for example, um, terrestrial fishing, uh, as well as certain dry fly fishing uh, strategies that happened on this small spring creek. And uh, this spring creek has an incredibly high biomass and has the a huge carrying capacity for a very small creek such that very very large brown trout have historically been taken out of Latort Spring Run. Uh, I fished Latort uh, many times a week for a number of years when I was living in Pennsylvania and I have a great great fondness for it. It is a uh, pale imitation of its former self so if you were reading a book from, uh, say, the 50s, 60s, 70s, then it's not going to be like that, but it's still a wonderful creek, and I had many, many wonderful days on it, and I always make an effort to return to it whenever I'm uh, spending some time in south-central Pennsylvania. All that to say, Andrew writes a question that I'll explain here in a second. He says, Matthew, the Latorte, perhaps you can help. I'm trying to research a concept I saw online recently, but failed to document at the time, and now revisiting that the Loch Levin trout being referred to as the, quote, movers versus the German strains considered less inclined to move up and down the river. So real quick to, to interject here, um, there are multiple strains of brown trout. So brown trout are native to uh, Europe and uh, Eurasia, and they all, like any other species of animal, as they are distributed across a territory, they will adapt to where they live. And so there are, at the bare minimum, behavioral and aesthetic differences, and sometimes there's even genetic differences um, for fish. And so a great example here, he, he mentions the uh, Loch Levin trout, which should be um, from Scotland. And so these are going to be in Scotland and then the German brown trout, which would be in Germany. Uh, but you also find fish in the British Isles and you find fish, uh, down further South into, uh, almost the Mediterranean. So you have a very wide variety of brown trout, but both of these fish have been historically stocked in Pennsylvania. So back to his email, there was talk that the big browns were disappearing from the Latort because they were being caught and not released by coarse anglers down on the County Gwinnett, where those big browns would migrate in early spring to pack on condition, which I think is a fancy European word for weight. This side of the globe, we have a similar population of browns stocked from Loch Levin around the same time, and with the notion they too might be inclined to go downstream for a time each spring. Any info would be greatly appreciated. Regards, Andrew. Andrew, that's a great question. And uh, I really didn't respond in any sort of significant way when you first commented on this because I was in the throes of Christmas. And I actually haven't done a whole lot more research. And so, uh, one, I'm kind of using this as an opportunity to make a note to go back and do more research. And two, just to touch on how there is a lot of validity in the behavioral patterns of certain strains or certain populations of fish. So uh, you, you see this very uh, clearly uh, up here in New England, for example, where you have uh, streams where there are brook trout that are uh, the salters. They spend time in uh, freshwater creeks to spawn, but then they move out into the rivers, uh, excuse me, into the bigger rivers, then ultimately into the ocean. But then also you have brook trout that have been stocked on top of them that are uh, not from that salter stock. And so they are perfectly content to stay in the freshwater all the time. 
And that is a just a, a, a simple example. Um, I'm, I know that there's other examples of this happening out west with certain cutthroat populations and rainbow populations. So then you run into are these uh, rainbow trout that move into the ocean or these true steelhead. So this is a really fascinating uh, uh, concept. Now, why is it important though? It, why is it more than just something to talk about? Well, uh, a few reasons. First of all, for conservation, uh, different fish species that may have a lot of similarities may have significant differences when it comes to genetics and when it comes to population. There may be certain aspects of fish that you want to uh, perpetuate, certain characteristics that you want to preserve, because that is a characteristic of a species and a population that is native to that area, that stream, that watershed. Uh, something else that's important, and I, I guess this, and well, let me backtrack a minute. The point of Andrew's email uh, was, or, or comment, excuse me, was that maybe some of these fish that were getting fat uh, throughout the, the majority of the year uh, on the, uh, and the, the water that's rich in the Latort would then for a time move out of that protected area and then down into the Conaguinet. Here's my only uh, kind of uh, retort to that. The Latort retort, if you will. Uh, the catch and release fly fishing only regulations didn't go into effect until uh, relatively recently uh, in the in the uh, in the 20th uh, century. So when the Latort was in its heyday, people were catching and keeping large fish. Even some of the marquee anglers, you know, you'll see pictures of them with their fingers up through the gills of some of these really big six, seven, eight pound brown trout. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that that is necessarily what's happening. Additionally, there's a pretty long distance to travel from some of the most productive water down to the county Gwinnett. That's not to say fish can't move that far. They certainly can. So anyway, the first thing would be the, the conservation thing. The second thing is just fish behavior. Uh, where can you find fish? In certain times of year, are big fish going to be in bigger water? And then other times of year, they're going to be in smaller water. And so Andrew's question is fantastic. It's, it's fantastic for the two reasons I mentioned, the conservation aspect as well as the angling aspect. But thirdly, it's an interesting question just because it helps us understand the dynamics of fish and a fishery. And having the awareness of what's going on is the first step as you move towards talking about conservation, whether it be how do we protect fish, how do we um, you know, potentially say there is going to be a delayed harvest where it's catch and release for this time of year because these large fish may move into this water body and then they may move back out and then you could open it up to harvest for people who want to catch stockfish. Lots of interesting things that you can you can apply, but that's a great question, Andrew. And uh, I, I, as I responded to Andrew, I have heard that there are uh, migratory fish and that may be tied to a particular strain that was stocked. The more uh, more prominent distinction that I saw uh, had to do with rising, which fish maybe had the propensity to rise more, uh, even when hatches weren't going on. And secondly, the uh, aesthetic differences, the Loch Levin trout uh, being uh, much more sparsely spotted, having a greater propensity to have that bronzy, orangey color with very few spots. And I've certainly caught those fish. And I've caught them in, in places that were very, very bizarre, uh, where they only had maybe six, eight big spots on their sides. Very, very cool looking fish. But anyway, Andrew, that's a, that's a great question, something I could talk about for a long, long time. All right, second question. I actually have a YouTube channel. There's not a lot of videos, uh, but uh, there's a couple of them that I think are 
worth sharing, and a lot of them have to do with gear. Uh, one I did, boy, this was back uh, two years ago, uh, was on different styles of wading boots, how there's different you know approaches to picking a wading boot. I'm sure there's dozens of other videos that talk about this on, on YouTube. But mine, I basically broke it down to really heavy duty, uh, uh, kind of more casual uh, all around, and then lightweight. So someone, uh, his his handle is HN Trains, commented relatively recently, can I use my old hiking shoes instead? And this is actually a question I've heard from a lot of people, uh, both from casting across and back when I used to sell fly fishing gear, people would find a pair of waders that they really liked. And they're like, okay, I'm all right, spending $300. Then you realize, well, you got to also spend another hundred bucks to buy boots. Well, I've got boots at home. I've got hiking boots, I've got work boots, I've got snow boots. Can I just use those? And the short answer is absolutely. I mean, you can use those, you can use your sandals, you can use your tennis shoes, you can use dress shoes. They're, they're going to work as long as you can fit your foot in your waders and your waders in that shoe. You can go out fishing them. You know, you could do whatever you want into it with them. Now, are there going to be some drawbacks? Absolutely. And this might sound like a simple question, but let's understand why it, it's, it's a um, ideal to buy wading boots. First of all, the fit's going to be different. Your normal shoes are not used to you wearing a sock and then a neoprene booty on top of it. Uh, secondly, uh, traction. And this is probably going to be the biggest deal. Uh, a boot that has spectacular traction on dry surfaces is not necessarily going to have great traction on wet surfaces. And the inverse is, of course, true. That's why people hate wearing felt wading boots on long hikes, uh, particularly if there's any sort of frozen ground. It's not safe and it's not not very fun either. So that's that's the second thing. And the third thing is it is going to really do a number on your uh, boots. Even if you have waterproof boots, your boots are meant to be waterproof or your shoes are meant to be waterproof from the outside, not from the inside. And anytime that something that's not supposed to be wet gets wet, it's a problem, especially if that thing also has a waterproof side to it. So if you have a pair of old hiking boots, but they're waterproof and they get wet on the inside, they are not going to dry out anytime soon. They're going to get heavy and they're going to deteriorate. And they're probably not going to stand up to the rigors of being wet for a long time. So can you use your old tennis shoes to go wet wade in the summer? Of course. You know, if, if you need to do that in a pinch, it's way better than doing it barefoot. Uh, and if you don't have the resources, it's way better than spending a hundred dollars on a pair of wet wading shoes. Uh, but is it ideal? I would say no. And I would say the same thing for adding a shoe on top of your waders that is not particularly or specifically designed for. And I guess the, the one last thing that I, I would say is uh, having a wading boot that has a higher ankle on it is going to be helpful because you're going to need much more ankle support as you are wading uh, than you would even if you were hiking in really difficult terrain. And the inside of the collar of that wading boot is going to be designed so that it is not abrasive towards your waders, because that is going to be one of those fail points. A fail point on your waders is going to be the seam between the body of your waders and that probably Gore-Tex material and the neoprene booty. So having uh, a material on the inside of your boots that is not going to be abrasive is a very, very important aspect to consider. All that said, there's no dumb questions, and that's actually a really good question that I've heard many, many times. So I really appreciate folks that don't mind asking a question that uh, they haven't seen or heard anybody else ask before. So thank you, uh, whatever your name is, HN Trains, for doing that.
All right, third question, and this one is uh, one that I, I could probably do an entire podcast on, but uh, I don't, certainly don't have the time for that, and I don't know if anybody has the interest, but I wanted to mention it anyway. So uh, years ago, I wrote in response to an article that I was linked to um, that appeared, I believe, it was in the Tampa Bay Times, and the author of that article, Liz Dreyer, reached out to me. Uh, the article was about giving uh, natural features, whether it be like a national park or whether it be a, uh, a population of animals, giving them the same rights as humans. Now, there is precedent for this, and there's, a, there's precedent for it in a couple of ways. Um, it ha has happened internationally, and also in the United States, corporations can be represented as persons. Um, I'm not arguing the legality of that. I'm not arguing the, um, the, 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 the precedent itself. Uh, because that's not my area of specialty. What I am concerned with is the, um, the, the moral and worldview implications of granting the trees in my, uh, the, the, the wetlands behind my house, uh, the same legal status as me. Uh, and for a few reasons, but you can read that article, but this is, this is Liz's response. She says, dear Matthew, I just came across your post and I'm honored that you read my column and took the time to address it in your blog. I respect your skepticism and the practical challenges you raise, but the truth is our efforts at nature stewardship have so far failed miserably. The world population has ballooned to 8 million. In the last 50 years, we've killed off two thirds of the world's wildlife. The oceans are choked with human waste, and that's just the start of the problems we've created. If humans don't take drastic action to reverse the decline in biodiversity, the creatures we love and depend on for sustenance will be consigned to the history books, and humankind may be as well. This column explains in more detail than I have room for here, and I'm glad to provide more links. And she gives a link to uh, an article in the Smithsonian. Um, I hope you will give nature rights some more thought, and especially political representation for nature via human guardians, so future laws can more effectively protect our resources. As a fishing enthusiast, I know you have the same goals and concerns that I do. What we need is a huge contingent of people demanding to change our system of laws and government, and I hope we can be allies in this endeavor. Great, eloquent, uh, very uh, uh, respectful email from Liz, and I really appreciate it. And I responded. I'll read my response, and I'll kind of flush it out. I said, hi, Liz. Thanks for reading and writing. As a co-belligerent for environmental stewardship, my concern is that we don't resort to base pragmatism. In the big picture, human rights are being demoted across the board. I said the unborn, the aged, the disabled, etc. I can't unsee the reality that a worldview willing to sanctify the environment is also willing to remove the dignity of man. We agree on preserving the natural world. I think we need to put our own oxygen mask on first before we flail at the remarkably resilient natural world next to ourselves. So let me explain what I meant when I said that. You know, I, 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 I make no bones about kind of who I am, my profession and my beliefs, because uh, there are things in this world and there's things to me that are significantly more important than fly fishing. Uh, that's not necessarily the purpose of casting across, but I can't uh, ignore or I can't cover up uh, the fact that that is uh, a, a baked in part of who I am and about what I communicate. It's my worldview. So I am a Christian in the Reformed uh, tradition, and consequently, I have a very high view of man. 
I think that uh, that we need to have a consistent viewpoint of not just man, but all of nature. And so although I believe man is fallen, and I believe that we have a lot of problems, significant problems between ourselves and our and nature, but ultimately in front of our creator, I also believe that we are created in the image of God. And so consequently, we have great dignity. I don't see that man and nature are on the same platform. So I don't think it is wise to fix the problem by putting man and nature on the same platform, because in doing so, we are being inconsistent. We are in, as I mentioned earlier, a day and age where in different ways, in different means, we are reducing the dignity of man, where you have certain countries, including Canada, as well as some Scandinavian countries, where euthanasia is basically on demand. And without going into too much detail regarding uh, the abortion issue, uh, it is very, very uh, apparent, regardless of your perspective on this, that the nature of life, period, a living thing, whatever you want to call it, has is something that we are questioning and, and our, our, our culture has questioned and, and has devalued in many ways. So to turn around and say, I'm going to give a grove of aspen trees the same rights as a human is, in, is on one hand, from one worldview, very disingenuous because humans don't have a lot of rights uh, across the board. Th that is being applied very inconsistently. From another worldview, what I would say my worldview is, uh, that is inappropriate because it denigrates the value of humanity and it raises the value of the created order. Now, what I can't stress enough is that this doesn't mean that I think that humans should do whatever they want to do. I think, though, we need to start with first things. We need to acknowledge who we are. We need to acknowledge that we are not supreme and sovereign. We need to acknowledge that we are operating in a world that has been created with certain laws that we need to abide by, and one of those laws is natural stewardship. So I would, I would heartily get on every one of the points that Liz Dreyer made in her, in her comment. Choking the oceans with human waste. Terrible. It's awful. I mean, anybody who throws trash on the beach, I scowl at and then go pick it up while I continue to scowl at them, right? Um, uh, killing off the, the, the world's wildlife. Uh, that's happened a lot of times before in our history, particularly if you take a, a very long view of history. There's been many mass extinction events that humans had no part of. Now, I'm not saying that uh, that takes us off the hook. I just uh, think that that's worth throwing in there, that you can't have a worldview that says that we've been around for billions of years, for example, where there's been countless mass extinctions and then say people are to blame when people are in that worldview, a relatively recent blip on the timeline. From my worldview, I'd say, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that go into this and a lot of them that, that pertain to man's interaction with, with wildlife. So how do we deal with that? And the last thing that she said is a, the ballooning population of the world. And I think that that particular language, there is the insinuation that that is a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that the man's design is such that we uh, spread across the world, we have dominion over it, and we steward it well, that we, we, we tend the world, the natural, beautiful things, the seascapes and the mountainsides and all the animals in between as you would tend a garden lovingly. Sometimes that means uh, domestication and sometimes that means leaving it alone and protecting it. 
I don't think that uh, a population growth is a problem because we, you know, you look back 45, 50 years when the population was about half of what it is now. And uh, there was a great cry saying that we weren't going to be able to feed these people and that the world was essentially going to end. And here we are, and we are feeding people in a way today with 8 billion people that we didn't even think was possible with three and a half or, or less than 4 billion people. Now, I will hop off my soapbox, but I think it's important that we think these things through. Now, no matter if you agree with everything I've said or you agree with nothing I said, the thing that is consistent is that my aim is to protect the environment, whether it be a trout or whether it be the big picture. From my worldview, it's consistent in that it sees me and it sees my role and my purpose as actually protecting those things because I've been given that responsibility by my, my creator. And that I see you and anyone else listening to this, because trees can't listen to this, trout can't listen to this, rocks can't listen to this, as having that same obligation and responsibility. And so we want to exercise that and we want to do so not by taking the dignity away from people, not by giving it in some uh, you know false way or in some sort of honorary way to to nature. You know, I don't want to give trout human rights. I want to enable people to protect trout because they matter. They were created to matter and we were created to take care of them and eat them too. But that's another story. Well, if Liz, you listen to this again, I appreciate your interaction. And if you have thoughts. You, the listener, have thoughts about this. Again, and I treated this in a very, very quick way. Uh, there's so much more I could say, uh, so much more I could uh, um, go into in details, both from a scientific perspective, from a faith perspective, from a philosophical perspective, and from a personal perspective. And I'd be happy to explore that again sometime in the future. Anyway, uh, three quick interactions. I always appreciate uh, those and uh, I always respond as much as I can to anybody and everything. Uh, and the cream of the cop get, makes it to uh, this podcast every 10 episodes. This week on castingacross.com, first article was called Showing Them People, Places, and Things. I went to the Marlboro Fly Fishing Show this week, and I took my boys, and they had a great time. I took only the older two, and uh, it was really fun watching other people interact with them, uh, showing them things, explaining things to them. That was that was a lot of fun. I'm uh, only a few hours away from heading down to New Jersey to kind of do the casting across thing uh, down there at th that fly fishing show stop, but it was cool to do the dad thing at this fly fishing show. So I wrote about a couple of cool interactions they had. Wednesday's article is called Diverse Conservation in Mount Rainier National Park. Diverse Conservation in Mount Rainier National Park. The stat of that podcast is that, or excuse me, that that article was that Mount Rainier has nine distinct watersheds as identified by the National Park Service, which is just fascinating to think there's nine distinct watersheds within one national park, but really coming off of one mountain. And so consequently, they need to take a multi-tiered and diverse approach to the conservation of the native fishes and the management of the non-native fishes that are within the bounds of that national park. So I wrote a few words on that and shared some really interesting links that are worth checking out. Whether you live in, fish in, visit uh, Washington State or not, it's worth looking at because it touches on some really interesting aspects of conservation. This week's recommendation is unique, I think, in the 220 episodes of this podcast that I've had, and it is cross-current insurance. Cross-current insurance. Uh, cross-current is a, an insurance company, obviously, for the outdoor industry. 
and they have insured and are insuring guides, outfitters, lodges, resorts, manufacturers, distributors. Uh, if you are in retail, even e-commerce, uh, outdoors, nonprofits and associations, um, all sorts of outdoor pursuits, they provide insurance that is is managed by people who are familiar with the outdoor industry particularly for people in the outdoor industry and so if you if you are a guide then most states require you get guide insurance having a policy that is tailored for you where you are fishing and a little bit of a side note if you are fishing with a guide you want to make sure that they have guide insurance um, so having a, an insurance policy that is particularly uh, designed for you and that industry, for who you're using and for his or her industry is important. But uh, they, they really do cover the a, a wide spectrum. So if you have a fly shop, if you are creating something that someone is going to use and you need liability insurance, you need some other kind of insurance, it is worth going after somebody who knows exactly what you need, what you're doing and that knows what they're doing. They are backing what they do with decades in the insurance uh, industry already. They're just bringing it over into their passion and their pursuit. So whether this is applicable to you or applicable to somebody you know, if you're thinking about starting uh, in the outdoor industry and you know that insurance is something that is on the docket for needing to do to really get where you need to be and have that peace of mind and that protection for yourself and for your customers, definitely look at cross-current insurance. So I'll put a link to cross-current on this podcast's notes over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Live Stream Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.